we ended our study last week with Paul's assertion that these false teachers desired to be teachers of the law, but they had no understanding about what they taught, even though they were very confident about it. You know, the old axiom, make it to, or fake it till you make it, might work well your first week or two at the new job or at the new, uh, the new school, but it doesn't, it's not a good idea when it comes to teaching the Word of God. Their reckless handling of Scripture had led to speculations, verse 4 tells us. Vain discussion, verse 6. As a matter of fact, later in chapter 1 and verse 19, Paul says it's led to the shipwreck of their very own faith. Teaching matters. Teaching matters. You could go to a church with the best music, the hippest pastor, the greatest facilities, the coolest programs and youth group they might have, but if they are not grounded in the gospel, as Rich McKay says, that juice ain't worth the squeeze. In fact, if the teaching is consistently off and goes further and further afield from the gospel, all those things that might appear to be great are just contributing to the deception. The sad truth is that scripturally-based, Christ-centered, gospel-focused teaching is not the norm in the churches, but rather the exception. Not only does the history of the church bear this out, but Scripture tells us. Last week, we looked at Paul's very own warning to this very church that this could happen, and it bears looking at again. So let's look at again Acts chapter 20. This is what Paul says in verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And now, as we're here in 1 Timothy it is taking place. But it's not just the Christians in the Ephesians church, but recall with me what Paul wrote to the Christians in the Galatian churches in Galatians chapter 1. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So not only is Paul writing the same issue to the Ephesian churches, he had the right to the same concern to the Galatian churches. And of course, before Paul wrote about this, Jesus himself warned us about this. Look at Matthew 24 and verse 5. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Again, teaching matters. In verses 8 through 11 here, Paul is making the point of how these people who desire to be teachers of the law, they're off base. Likely what's going on is that they have a different doctrine. It's a misuse of what's called the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, and because of that, they have a poor understanding of the role of God's grace and mercy in salvation. Now, Paul's going to unpack that brilliantly starting next week, uh, verses 12 through the end of the chapter, and he wants to aim to correct that. But this morning, we're going to look at the two points that Paul makes, and then we're going to add a third point because it's so intrinsically related to the first two. So the first two points that Paul makes, here they are is number one, remembering that the law is good. And, and I came up with three R's to help you uh, figure, uh, remember this, and I came up with them this morning, so that's why they're not on the slide. The first one is remembering that the law is good. The second point is realizing that the law is not for the just but for the lawless. And the third point is recognizing uh, the, the relationship between law and grace. So number one, remembering that the law is good. Number two, realizing that the law is not for the just but for the lawless. And number three, recognizing the relationship between law and grace. Let's look at them one at a time. 
Number one, remembering that the law is good. So we begin by looking at verse 8. Paul says, now we know that the law is good. And dipping back into last week, so within the room, the legalists within our room, our congregation are saying, that's right, law, structure, rules, we like that. But Paul also says, if one uses it lawfully. Now the antinomians in the room are going, that's right, rules can be abused, they're so impersonal and cold, we want freedom, right? Now why would Paul write this in the first place? Why would he have to say that the law is good if one uses it lawfully? Well, probably one of two reasons. Suppose they could even be both of them happening, but to kind of understand the context of what's going on, let's try to explain it. And quite frankly, the message of these five verses is pretty straightforward. The law is good if we use it lawfully. And the law is for the just, not the unjust. That's the point he's making. But because we're 2,000 years removed and there's so many implications of how we relate to this, we're going to spend some time. Why would Paul write that the law is good? Number one, it could be because in this city, many of the converts to Christianity came from kind of a pagan background. They were pagan converts, and they were now bucking against the demands of this new Christian life upon them. They felt that the law was oppressive and bad. They like Jesus, they certainly like Jesus and what He's about, but all that other stuff, the implications of that, forget about it. We don't want that. You keep in mind, in the New Testament, you realize there are 52 commands written to Christians of how we are to relate to one another. I call them the one another's because you'll see it at least 52 times, a command of how we are to relate to one another, honor one another, forgive one another, be hospitable to one another, encourage one another, Right? Hold one another accountable. 52 commands. And you can imagine these pagan converts going, oh, man, that's Jesus is cool, but all this other stuff, not into that. But for people like that, Christianity resembles uh, more like a buffet, right? You take the food that you like, you ignore the dishes you don't. I'll, I'll go for the blessing, prosperity, and comfort. I'm going to skip the, the self-denial and sacrificial living. I will have a second helping of that moralism. Oh, and put some Bible study in a doggy bag to go, right? That, that's the way you approach this. But, but then that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is not a buffet where we pick and choose what we like. Christianity is more like eating at my friend's house. I grew up in, a, a, in, in Hawaii, and I used to hang out in this, this kind of rougher part of town called Kalihi, second, third generation immigrants from the Philippines and Europe and, and China and all that, and, and, and Hawaiians. And tutu was the affectionate word for grandma. And when tutu would call, would say it was lunchtime, all the kids were welcome, not just her grandkids, but all the kids on the block were welcome. If you were playing and tutu called lunch, you could come for lunch. All were welcome, but you had to eat everything she gave you, and you couldn't complain about it, right? Maybe some of you had a tutu like that. And yeah, you would get dessert, but not before you ate your, I was going to say greens, but it was poi, right? So, and, and poi is an acquired taste. And you could get your, your, your Snickers bar or whatever, but you got to eat tutu's poi first, and you don't complain about it. Friends, that's more like what Christianity is. Everyone's welcome to the table, and it's all going to be good stuff, but you got to take it all if you're going to come right? And for some people, being moral may come naturally, but for the rest of us, being like Christ doesn't come naturally at all. And if the demands of Christianity are not sometimes hard to swallow, you have to wonder if you understand what the demands of Christianity are. 
We can understand these pagan converts who basically had a lawless life coming to Christianity. You could see where they would say, oh, man, I I like this Jesus stuff, but all this other transformation, sacrifice, deny myself? No. Give me more of that grace and freedom thing you've been talking about. And Paul is saying, no, the law is good. Let's not downplay it. No, that's one possibility. On the other hand, you could imagine that There were many Jews now coming to hear the gospel and now within this church, and they misunderstood what Paul had been teaching about the law earlier. After all, look at what he says about the law in Romans chapter 7, verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Or what he wrote to the Galatians in Galatians 2. Yet we know that a person's not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, because by works of the law, no one would be justified. And so they were listening to Paul and saying, this, this, this guy may, must not like the law. He thinks the law is bad. And if you read between the lines, a lot of times in the New Testament, you can hear that Paul's opponents must have thought he was an antinomian. And so these Jews who had converted to Christianity want to say, no, 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 the law, Paul is saying that the law is bad, and Paul is saying, no, 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 the law is good. But the problem is that these people were responding to a misunderstanding and said, no, 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 all of you need to obey the law. And so we're going to apply the law to all of you guys, irregardless of whether you're Jew or Gentile. After all, the law is God's commands, and don't we want to obey God? We defy his commands, we defy God. Isn't that how we sometimes think of being Christians? Good Christians obey the commands of God. It makes sense. So we're not sure 100% why Paul said the law is good. Maybe he was responding to pagans who said that the law is bad, and he says, no, the law is good. Maybe he was responding to Jews who were saying, Paul thinks the law is bad, and Paul's saying, no, the law is good. Either way, what Paul has to say here is helpful for us because we still struggle with the same kind of thing. As I said last week, every one of us in this room, we, we either tend to be more of the legalist, right? We're always focused on obedience and the commands, or maybe we're more the antinomian. We're always focused on our freedoms and the freedoms we have in Christ. And Paul is acknowledging that God's law is good, but it can be used incorrectly. By saying, if one uses it lawfully, Paul is implying that there is an intended use of God's law. So the law of God is good, but it can certainly be bad. It depends upon how you use it, and that's what he's getting at in verses 9 through 10. Let's look at that, realizing that the law is not for the just, but for the lawless. Look at verse 9. Understanding this, Paul says, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And then he lists, there's this list of 14 vices in verses 9 and 10 that describes the people for whom the law was laid down for, in contrast to the one type of person, the just, that the law was not laid down for. And this list, you know, it begins with general sins, but then later shows how these sins might flesh out in our lives. But the question we want to ask is, well, then, how is the law intended to be used? Well, number one, we know that there's the, the restraining use of God's law. We see this all through the Old Testament. We even see it in our own culture. 
The Ten Commandments and the law is, man, that, that word a lot of times can refer to what's called the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments. It can refer to the implications of that law. So there's a lot of fluidity with that word. But the Ten Commandments is probably the best moral code, it is the best moral code that humanity's ever gotten, right? It, it, there, you, can, you have no moral code that is supreme, that has, has superseded the Ten Commandments. Whether or not people believe in them, whether or not societies believe in them, they are the foundation for a lot of public morality. We said uh, about two summers ago, in fact, we studied the Ten Commandments of how Christ is the fulfillment of the Ten Commandments. So that's our sermon page. If you weren't here for that series, I'd encourage you. We looked at every commandment and showed how they pointed to Christ and Christ was the fulfillment of them. That moral code and all of its implications lays the structure for every civilized society from its giving, and it hasn't been superseded. So the law has this kind of restraining use in our societies to restrain um, sinful tendencies. Whether or not people acknowledge them as sinful, they restrain our darker natures. Secondly, there is a condemning use of the law, which is what I think Paul is referring to in our passage. The law condemns us. It shows us the problem. And keep your finger in 1 Timothy, but go with me to Romans 7. Let's let Paul interpret it himself. Let's let Scripture interpret Scripture. We're going to read Romans chapter 7, and I'm going to read you a kind of a larger portion because I want to get the full context and feel of what Paul is saying. So Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 7, and we're going to read it really through the end of the chapter. I just want you to hear and follow with me what Paul is saying about this, the, the law. Romans chapter 7, verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. 
Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So what Paul is saying is that the law exposed to me and condemns my actions. I may not have realized that this was sin, but now I recognize this is in fact sin, and that sin brings forth death. Is the problem the law? No, Paul says. What's the problem? Sin. And the law rightly condemns my sin. But yet, as, at the same time, you see the tension of Paul. I want to do what's right, but I don't have the ability to. You see this dynamic. The law's condemning use is at play. It is the law, not sin, that is the problem. So there's the restraining use of the law that we have structured our societies with that restrains our wicked behavior. But then there's this, this internal condemning sense of the law. But then there's a final use of the law. I call it the come to Jesus or the sanctifying use of the law. When you read the law, the law describes the life we're supposed to live. It describes the life we're supposed to live, this totally God-besotted, people-loving, self-effacing, holiness-pursuing, injustice-hating life of moral, practical, and joyful perfection. That's what the law is telling us. Remember what Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48? You must be what? Perfect. Why? Because my heavenly Father is perfect. You must be what? Perfect. Why? Because my heavenly Father is perfect. You must be perfect. Why? Because our heavenly Father is perfect. I have to be perfect? Are you kidding me? That's what I have to be? Then forget about it. If, if that's the standard, I am doomed. You are doomed. If that's what the law is about, then we are doomed. I need someone to do this for me. I need a substitute. I tap out. Right? But see, what happens is, what happens is the religious impulse of the human heart comes out. Remember our study of Jonah, right? It, it, the human heart does not disbelieve God. It just doesn't trust him. What happens is the law comes up to us, and the, here's, here's for you religious people in the room. This is what happens. Okay, laws, rules. Yeah, that's right. Give me that. I'm going to do that. Okay, I'm going I'm to live by these rules. When we hear the law, that's the religious response. The irreligious response is something like this. Oh, if that's the, the, the demand, forget it. I'm not even going to try. Forget this whole Christian thing. Right? So one is a religious response. The other is an irreligious response. Both of them misunderstand the point. The point of the law is that it condemns you and you say, I can't do this. I need someone to do it for me. It's when you get to that point, you understand what Jesus is about. I need a substitute. You need a substitute. That's what Jesus is. Jesus lived the life you couldn't live, and he died the death you should die as your substitute. His life and death was not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. That's what he said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He says, do not think that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. And you can almost put parenthetically, as your substitute. 
And it's all been for you. It's all been for me. Don't believe my words for it. Let's look at Paul. Um, keep your fingers in Romans and go to Galatians, which is a couple books to the right from, from Romans. Galatians chapter 3, verse at 24 and 25 Listen to what Paul says to the Galatians about the relationship of the law and the work of Christ. Galatians chapter, 20, uh, chapter 3, verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian. Um, also could be tutor, could be taskmaster, right? The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. We are no longer under the tutor. We're no longer under the taskmaster because the point of the law was to push us to Christ, after which we no longer need this law. This is why in 1 Timothy chapter 8, or excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul says, the law is not laid down for the just. Because if you're in Christ, you're just. You don't need the law. The law remains for those who are still living opposed to God so that their sin may be revealed, not just so that they're condemned by guilt, so that they may be pushed to their need for a Savior. Therefore, Paul's argument is solid. The law can't be applied equally to everyone the way these false teachers were doing it. As much as that might appeal to the religious heart, that's not what the law is about. Look at Romans chapter 8. Chapter 8. So right after this amazing chapter where Paul is, is wrestling with this dynamic of the law and his struggle with it, and he realizes that it's Christ that's going to set him free. Look what he says in chapter 8. We're going to read the first four verses. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. He did this by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. And here's the, here's the pay dirt in verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Friends, Christianity does not teach... That because of Jesus, your sins are forgiven, period, you're done. Christianity teaches that because of what Jesus has done, your sins are forgiven, bam, you are righteous, you're innocent before God, but it also teaches the righteousness of Christ is given to you. You see, if we just got forgiveness, well, now we're just morally neutral. Now we're not an offense to him, but we're still not on his plus side, so to speak. But the righteous requirement of the law was given to you. So when God looks at you, if you are in Christ, He's not seeing you have no sin. He is seeing you are righteous beyond belief. And we just saw it right there. And the false teachers, we are misusing the law, applying it to everyone, trying to live by the law. They don't realize we don't need the law. It's been fulfilled in Christ. Now, this is basically what Paul is saying, that the law is not for the just, it's for the unjust, and he lists that. But because we're so far removed from them and there's so many implications, let's, let's now talk about that, this third point. That doesn't mean that as Christians there is no relationship to God's law, and this brings us to our last point this morning, recognizing the relationship between the law and grace. And, and really, this is the meat of what I want to say this morning, okay? This is the meat of it. The, the law of God and the grace of God 
are both a reflection of the character and will of God. To place one in opposition to the other is to misunderstand them both. Let me say that again, that the law of God and the grace of God are both reflections of his character, and you don't juxtapose them, because when you do, you don't, you're not going to misunderstand. You're not going to understand either one of them. You have to see them together. Friends, the reason we're legalists and think it's all about obedience and the commands of God, or the reason we're, we're antinomians and we think it's all about grace and the freedoms we have in Christ is because we don't know how these two work together. And, and so we feel like we got to pick and choose or based on our temperament, we're going to align ourselves more to one than the other. Friends, the antidote to legalism is not more freedoms. Likewise, the antidote to antinomianism is not more rules. Right? And that, that's usually what happens. The extremes justify each other and say, if you were more like us, you'd be better. If you were more like us, you'd be better. But the reality is you're just switching the disease from one side to the other. They're both wrong. People think the cure is the opposite, but it's, it's just a different kind of disease. Friends, false teaching, and this is why Paul's so concerned about it, however good, however good it might sound, is still unhealthy, which is that word sound, sound doctrine. We get the English word hygiene from it. False teaching, however good it sounds, is still not healthy. So even if it sounds like this, follow the law of God because you love God, or you don't have to follow the law of God because he loves you are both wrong. They're both wrong and they're both unhealthy because in both cases, the focus is on yourself and the law. Both of those follow God's law because I love God and that's how I show it, or I don't have to follow the law of God because God loves me and this is how he shows it. Both misunderstands it because the focus is on yourself and the law. The only difference, friends, is that the legalist those religious type people that are in this room and we're, we're religious and irreligious, wearily assumes the burden of the law, right? Okay, I'm going to do this because that's what I do. That's what good Christians do. The only difference is that's what the legalist does. The antinomian refuses it and casts the law off, insisting that if God is so loving, he wouldn't demand that of him. So get this. The legalist sees obedience as a way to establish themselves. The antinomian sees obedience as antithetical to themselves, but both of them, it's about themselves, and it's not about Christ or the work of God. So they got the same problem. They're just different extremes of it. Both make the mistake of seeing obedience and freedom through the filter of themselves instead of seeing that our obedience and our freedoms is a way to bring joy and delight to the heart of God, and in so doing, we become the truest understanding of who we are, who we were created to be. But see, that is the goal of the gospel. The law and grace are two sides of this thing we call the gospel. Now, I want to I say this kind of... Um, Pack statement, so I put it up on the screen because I want to get it right. The fact of the matter is, it is grace, not law, that produces, ironically, what the law requires. And at the same time, it is what the law requires that grace produces. So the law of God is fulfilled by the grace of God, and thus the grace of God never nullifies the law of God. Friends, this is why in verse 11, Paul says the gospel is a revelation of the glory of God. Who could figure this out? Who could come up with this? 
Who could know the complexities of the human heart and the religiousness and the legalism in our heart to actually understand how to make this work? Because in the gospel, the absolute perfection that is required is satisfied in such a way that absolutely imperfect people like you and I can join in on it and enjoy it eternally and enjoy its benefits eternally. This is why in the New Testament, Paul is always so stoked about the gospel and so uh, diligent to guard that truth because the human heart can so easily co-opt the message of the gospel into either a legalism or antinomianism, a religious or irreligious understanding of how we relate to him and neither get that, man, both grace and law is a reflection of his character. Why would I want to forsake the reflection of his character? Why would I want to establish myself that way, right? I want to bring delight to him, and in doing so, I become what I was always intended to be. Friends, whenever, in conclusion, uh, we use our Christian obedience or our Christian freedoms to justify ourselves, right, and we can do that. I use my obedience to justify how good a Christian I am. I use my freedoms to justify how mature a Christian I am. Whenever we're doing that, by definition, the gospel doesn't justify us. The issue is always at heart. Am I in Christ? Am I, am I appreciating the benefits of Christ? Am I reveling in the relationship, the beauty of Christ? If you are not in Christ, you will always be bound to the law, and it will always be a burden. Ironically, likewise, if you are in Christ, you are free from the law, and you will love it and be blessed by the law. That is the, the amazing beauty and paradox of the gospel. To put it this way, friends, we are compelled by the law to live in grace. We are compelled by the law to live and revel in His grace. This morning as I, we were praying with the elders, uh, I made this comment or quoted from Augustine, the church father, and I thought, it's one of those expressions, if you get it, you get it. If you don't, it's hard. Augustine said that God demands the love that cannot be demanded. God demands the love from his people that can never be demanded. That's the beauty, the marvel, the mystery of the gospel, and Paul is going to tell us more about that next week. Let's pray. Father, we are finite beings wrapping our minds around the plan of an infinite God, and so inevitably there is paradox and mystery that we bump up against. What it means to be free of a law but love it uh, is confounding to us. It's so much easier to just be a rule follower. It's so much easier to just be a rule breaker. But yet, God, we recognize that our obedience and freedoms are not about ourselves. They're about bringing delight to you. And in so doing, we actually recapture the very purpose for which we were created. And in so doing, become the truest version of ourselves. Anything less, we're just, we're just chasing, chasing shadows. Father, so thank you for the gospel, that in the gospel we bring you delight and we become what you intended us to be. We could not have created this. So, Father, I pray that if there's anyone in this room that rejects it, that your spirit would use it to make them recognize there's no way religious people could have come up with this or irreligious people. There's no way a legalist or an antinomian could have come up with this complexity in the gospel. Father, we pray that as we ponder the amazing grace in the gospel, that it would transform into a life of praise, service, and devotion, and a life of joy 
that we may share it with others in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.